Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here with you until 6 this evening. And a reminder that you can hear this program through many ways. Of course, it's the old analogue, 3CR, 8.55am and then there's 3CR Digital and online streaming for a week or podcasting which is sent to your computer to listen to whenever you choose. And the latter two, by your computer at 3cr.org.au and the homepage will show you how to proceed. But first, the program today, and we have a new word for the dictionary in the next printing, AUKUS, and you'll be hearing lots about it on the program today. Professor Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute at the University of Melbourne is speaking a little bit about AUKUS, but mainly about his paper, Imagining the Possible Asia-Pacific Prospects for the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And then an update on an important European court decision affecting occupied Western Sahara. I'll be speaking with Kamal Fidel, the Polisario representative in Australia and New Zealand. Bevan Ramsden from IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, also on AUKUS and the broader Australia-US alliance. And more from Jacob Greck on AUKUS and the implications for Australia. Jacob, of course, is a presenter of the Friday Rave at 5 o'clock every Friday here at 3CR. But first, the computer wasn't hungry this week. So we have Mr. Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when it's all in the name. See, you have a national get-together of big supremo scuttlebim Morlace son, a.k.a. scummo, and the state supremos, a, for want of a better word, meeting, which just may, may criticise scummo, for instance, over vaccination availability or... Uh, non-availability or maybe the odd quarantine problem. But no, cleverly, you call it a cabinet and then declare its discussions and decisions and material are subject to cabinet confidentiality. And then an administrative appeals beak with obviously no knowledge of the law declares merely labelling something a cabinet does not make it so creating more work for the government, which then had to rush out legislation to declare it is a cabinet. Not that we're suggesting the government is secretive, but cabinet confidentiality is a sacred tenet of the Westminster system we all so cherish. Like the car park rorts affair and the sports rorts affair, which the respective departments and ministers tell us we unfortunately can't get access to the relevant spreadsheets and any other documents that just may assist those who suggest there were rorts because those rorts are subject to cabinet confidentiality. Achieved, we assume, by making sure there was some mention of it at some cabinet meeting or perhaps you just say there was. Bit like a case at the moment in which the tax department is challenging the big four international accounting behemoths who claim their clients' details are subject to legal privilege. 
with some suggestion, hard as it is to believe, that they get some junior lawyer to do some incidental unimportant work just to hide their clients' tax matters behind a cloak of secrecy. As if they'd do that. And what is the tax department carrying on about? We, we can be sure every one of those clients will tell us it is meeting our legal tax obligations. But Sports Rorts brings us to resurrected hayseed and sheepshit party intellectual heavyweight. At this point, we could name almost any of them, couldn't we? Heavyweight Bridget McCon the Measley, who said her party's obligations were to fossils and farting cows, not to the affluent suburbs where I believe she happens to live. Nonetheless, her Oh, why does intellectual heavyweight come to mind again? Her supremo barnacle said he would support zero emissions by 2050, as long as it didn't affect coal and agriculture. <laughs> Let's say that again. Barnacle says he would support zero emissions by 2050, as long as it doesn't affect coal and agriculture. Oh, and he threw in manufacture and a few other things as well, but I know we've always had enormous respect for Barnacle's power of thought, but he's excelled himself. Scummo explained it beautifully in an interview with a US OB telly network. It's one thing to have a commitment but in true blue Aussie, you're not taken seriously unless you've got a plan to achieve the commitment. And have you got a plan, we asked? Uh, well, no, no. Why, why not? You've had years to dredge one up. Why not? Why haven't we got a plan? Why haven't... Matthew, he yelled at a subordinate, why haven't we got a plan? Ask Barnacle. Oh, thank you, that's it. Ask Barnacle. Just before we ask Barnacle Scomo, does this mean you're not being taken seriously? Seriously, many long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, anti-true blue Aussies take not having a plan very seriously. That was obviously satire, because the real Scomo would have told us he has got a plan, but it is covered by cabinet confidentiality, and therefore he can't tell us what it is, and the people can take him very seriously for having a plan which he can't tell them. Whereas the Socialist Party, which has attacked the government for not having a plan, a very dangerous move, disagreeing with the government, most definitely has a plan, which is to develop a plan sometime before something or other before the end of the planet, perhaps. Not that we need a plan when Scummo and Fossils Minister Angus Tailings assure us we are meeting and beating our commitments. Which, yeah, isn't that difficult when you're committed to doing as little as possible. And my word, they're meeting that commitment with flying colours. Meeting and beating as little as possible brilliantly. Can I just say, if they're going to have a battle between like and like, neo-fascists in mufti on one side and neo-fascists in uniform on the other, then I can't think of a more appropriate place than the shrine, a sacred place dedicated to train-killing slaughter and destruction. Can't understand what those who love a bit of train-killing were complaining about. Notice the usual suspects, led by former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses, backed up by such minds as Lord Rupert of Wapping lackeys, including Bolt Through the Head, have supported the neo-fascists in Mufti side of the battle and accused the neo-fascists in uniform side of violence against peaceful protesters who, Tiny told the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, were within their rights to protest against the evil Victorian socialists likening the police to wartime soldiers, wartime soldiers, 
you had the Victorian police lined up like stormtroopers, eventually charging them with rubber bullets and tear gas. Poor, sensitive Tiny was shocked. But isn't this encouraging now that Tiny and the Lord Rupert puppets and likely the Institute of Public Very, Very Private have seen the light, we can look forward to them defending us next time the coppers turn that military arsenal on us. And thanks too to the pejorative Dan Evil Socialist Government attacked by Tiny for giving the constabulary such carte blanche and such an arsenal of weaponry. We look forward to the rubber bullets. The day the Battle of the Shrine took place, the coppers had guaranteed us they would contain them all and make sure they didn't run riot, and didn't that work a treat? On such matters, things military, during our interview with Scummo, he interrupted to put in a call to French big supremo Emmanuel Macron. Damn, the bloody message bank again. Emmanuel, it's me again. Scuttle them. You, you haven't answered my messages. Did you get my messages, all 102 of them? Could you please give us a call back? Please? Please? Uh, Silvu, play, Silvu, play. He seems to be ignoring you. No, no, I wouldn't say that. You must remember, he's a very busy man. Uh, yes, yes, he has been busy making sure that truly was a European Union trade agreement is torn up and telling the world you're... What is the word in French for rat? Still, when it comes to things nuclear in the Pacific, France will always have a cherished legacy of radioactivity and be fondly remembered by Greenpeace and our New Zealand neighbours. And see Indonesia and other people's business was critical of the nuclear sub-deal, telling us the Indo-Pacific way of dealing with these matters was discussion and respect for democracy and human rights, qualities no doubt celebrated in Timor-Leste and West Papua. Why is it, listener, that every time we hear Scummo or USR Big Supremo Joe or their new friend desperately looking for friends following his success with Brexit, Boris, talk about the ordered free Indo-Pacific ideal to which they aspire, it sounds like a, a call to arms, war talk, trillions on weapons of mass destruction because they so love peace, merchants of death rubbing their hands together, war is peace exemplified whenever the Minister for Trained Killing and Being Offensive, Constable Peter Duffer, opens his mouth, which unfortunately he won't keep shut. Real surprise this week, economic analysis from the US of the UN of the US of the world showing the 400 wealthiest families with wealth up to $160 billion, that's US dollars, pay on average a tax rate of just when we thought they would be coming up with all sorts of dodges to avoid paying tax, on average a tax rate of a massive 8%. No, seriously, admit it, we all thought they'd pay lots less than that. Of course, that being the average, then some would obviously be paying a lot less, but let's be clear, we could have no doubt they are meeting our legal tax obligations. At the other end of the wealth poverty scale, back here, big economic guru Josh Friday Icebergs announced he would terminate government support for workers affected by COVID restrictions. This was, he said, to give them certainty. And to his credit, we'd have to agree the, the certainty of a bit of starvation in the comfortable gutter they move into, or into which to be pedantically correct. As for corporate welfare, our old mate in us will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group advised, we have to be careful how we come out of it. A careful in us. 
Well, yes, we have to be careful that caring employers don't find themselves having to fork out for, having to pay their workers' salaries. In fairness, Josh said he hoped his contribution to poverty would encourage the state supremos to open up their economies sooner. Uh, But COVID is running riot, Josh. The state supremos have to sort out their priorities. It's the economy, stupid. Not stupid, but bitter bad luck for those intellectual heavyweights we referred to, poor Bridget, who, as we said, fingered affluent urban seats who don't understand we can't afford to address climate change if there is such a thing, naming Josh's seat specifically, probably because Josh said we should aim at zero emissions by some time after the end of the planet, thankfully not because of climate change if there is, but because not aiming would hurt the greatest little economic order which, in order, must trump climate change if there is, and a panacea. Bad luck, as I say, because next day Bridget had to join Josh in offering workers that starvation and homelessness. Asked about this, Bridget said, goodness me, she certainly didn't mean Josh when she attacked Urban Trendies. Uh, but, but you named his seat. No, no, obviously I was talking about the suburb. See? Intellectual heavyweight. Finally, bit of bad luck for the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review with its monthly glossy magazine's annual Power Edition Friday for the first time not making number one the big supremo, poor scummo, but naming four state supremos, same day as one of the most powerful resigned. Perhaps next year they could give it to the Anti-Corruption Commission, and perhaps that explains why a federal commission is the last thing scummo and the team want. Good afternoon. Another week that was with Mr. Kevin Healy. But don't forget, you can hear more from Kevin and the team on City Limits here at 3CR, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The Raucous Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panellists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter.
Dum da 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 dum da 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 bum 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 bum. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to fill in the dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to yes, fill in the. Pretty R Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. And I'm speaking once again with Professor Richard Tanter of the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne, who's worked on peace, security and environmental issues in East and Southeast Asia as an analyst, a political advocate and an activist since the 1970s. Richard, we're going to talk about your paper, Imagining the Possible Asia-Pacific Prospects for the Nuclear Ban Treaty. But first, a day or so after Morrison made his announcement, re the subdeal, etc., with the US and UK, you spoke about your reactions and what might be has there been much development, do you believe, since then that you'd like to talk about? I think there are what's really becoming clear about about AUKUS and the Australian response to it is that there's really quite a diverse negative reaction. Um, and that ranges from the people organising what they wonderfully called the, the raucous, AUKUS caucus in a week online, and I recommend that to people, and also people like the Green Institute are having a, a very solid look at what it means in terms from a peace and non-violence perspective. And then you have the two glorious whites from the two former prime ministers from you know, Paul Keating in you know, his absolutely uninhibited attack on Morrison and Bernice Payne about it. And even more cuttingly from Malcolm Turnbull, who really showed how much contempt he has for Morrison's lack of respect for truth in his national negotiations. Since it was Turnbull that negotiated the original French deal, which had lots of problems in my view, there was nowhere left for Morrison to run by the end of those two attacks, which I think both appeared on the same day in the Fairfax newspaper, the National Press Club. So this indicates, I think, that people are really trying to break out of what is in the mainstream media presented, A, as something absolutely necessary to deal with a very threatening China, and B, a fait accompli. And both, of course, are lines we need to think about very carefully. So is he running for cover for the next election? It's pretty clear that Morrison was hoping to wedge Labor up against the, the verities of the sainted alliance and labor ducked for cover it basically said we'll go along with this and then penny wong made a, a, a good but really quietly spoken condition that so long as australian sovereignty is not in, impaired but didn't really go on to analyze that so it, i think labor you know, I would like them to have been more outspoken about their anxieties about it. And I'm sure some of them, like Wong, do have 
serious anxieties. But on the other hand, it's very clear that um, Morrison is desperately looking for something to get them out of the, the kind of electoral excrement that their behaviour over the pandemic has put them into. And I think it's understandable that for at least a few months until the election that Labor sidesteps this issue. Well, today we're talking about your paper titled Imagining the Possible Asia-Pacific Prospects for the Nuclear Ban Treaty. Has this announcement by Morrison changed the prospects for the nuclear, nuclear ban? I don't think it has changed the prospects for the ban treaty in a direct way. What it has done is raise awareness that, firstly, Australian defence policy or the, the, the submarine proposal in particular is aimed at giving, really giving the United States a blank cheque to sell us um, eight or however many uh, long-range nuclear-powered submarines, which really only have sensible strategic use, not necessarily rational use, uh, in supporting American large-scale assault against China, including against China's uh, submarine-based nuclear deterrence. And that's something the Chinese will regard as an existential threat, and they'll really remember Australia's involvement uh, in that. Uh, the other thing, of course, is the nuclear-powered aspect of it, which, as Turnbull has pointed out at great length and quite accurately, really only makes any sense if you have a on these, for, for, for nuclear safety issues alone, if you have a substantial nuclear technology, nuclear uh, engineering base, and we don't have that. But it does, of course, open the door to um, people such as our Deputy Prime Minister who want to advance the argument for nuclear power plants as a solution to climate change. So I think those two uh, aspects haven't directly uh, impinged on the ban treaty, but they have got nuclear thinking, I think, moved up the agenda in Australia. It's nine months since the treaty was entered into force in January this year. Why have you written this paper at this time? I was asked to write it by a group of people I work with, both in the Nautilus Institute and colleagues, particularly in South Korea, which is also, of course, a nuclear-supporting country, an American nuclear uh, a recipient, it thinks, of American nuclear protection. And I thought it was really important in the Asia-Pacific region, not just in Australia, to make the argument that the ban treaty is here to stay. The ban treaty's existence does not in itself guarantee that it will work as a tool for the elimination of nuclear weapons, but it's the best thing we've had for a long time and then work out what are the ways in which we can make the chances of it uh, achieving that goal, uh, that long-term goal, uh, much more uh, realistic and believable. So that's really why I was writing it, both to speak to supporters of nuclear weapons, of supporters of nuclear deterrence, to say, look, this has got to be taken very seriously, but also to say to supporters of the ban treaty, we do have very hard issues to face and we really need to talk about them uh, pretty seriously. And what are the ways that you've identified? Well, I guess the first way is to, may sound trivial and, and academic, but it's not, I assure you. The language that we use to talk about nuclear weapons has a big influence on what people feel about them. 
So, for example, in the media, in academia, but in political debate as well, we talk about nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states, in each case with capital N, capital W, capital S. And that language comes from the uh, 1968 Non-Proliferation Treaty, and that divided the world into five states, Soviet Union, stroke Russia, uh, China, Britain, France, and non-nuclear weapon states. And it kind of has taken on the aura that that's some kind of legal recognition. It's not. It's not. So since there are four other countries that have got nuclear weapons, uh, North Korea, and much more importantly, India, Pakistan, and Israel, uh, more important in the sense of larger numbers, we ought to perhaps have a start talking not about nuclear weapon states and capitals like that, but nuclear possessing states and make that clear. All of these nine countries are essentially bringing a threat to humankind as a whole. And then you talk about countries like Australia, not so much as non-nuclear weapon states, which describes you know, the, the, uh, the 195, however many there are, countries which signed the NPT, which don't have nuclear weapons, but rather countries like Australia, US allies, which rely on the United States, according to its own defence doctrine, for nuclear protection, uh, let's call them nuclear supporting states and make them very clear that's what we're talking about. Australia is a nuclear supporting state. And then there are the countries, there are now some 86, 87 countries which have signed the, uh, the nuclear ban treaty. Uh, Chile, just the other day became, I think, the 57th or 58th country to ratify it, in other words, to become a, a full state's party on whom the nuclear ban treaty is binding. So you've got the nine nucleus possessing states, you've got the 32, 33-odd nuclear supporting states, and then you've got 86 uh, nuclear uh, ban treaty supporting states. That's what the world looks like, and we've got to make clear that, that there is a majority of, our, of the countries in the world which very clearly want uh, the nuclear ban treaty. So that might sound like a, you know, just a change of language, but it's actually not. We've got to be clear, we are going to be in the majority, but of course, nuclear, international law and international treaties only bind the countries which have signed and ratified it. So... The first task is to increase the number of uh, countries that signed and ratified it. Not that that will then legally force the countries which haven't signed it uh, into uh, behaving as we want, but it does begin to give you some leverage uh, to create an atmosphere where, for example, Indonesia, uh, which is much more of a non-aligned country than Australia, might want to say to the Australians, oh, um, when we have a dialogue, can you please tell us why you need nuclear weapons for your defence? Because we don't. And, of course, that leads to the question the Australians say, oh, it's because of our security. And the Indonesians may then say, well, tell us more about that. And the point is that if you actually look at an Australian government uh, official records and public statements, the rationales for why it needs nuclear weapons uh, and borrowed from the Americans to defend itself it's not even, they're not even a paragraph. They're a couple of sentences long, testifying to Parliament, uh, an Assistant Secretary of uh, Foreign Affairs and Defence, put it down to one sentence. Well, that would be a matter of uh, a last resort. Well, that's hardly something that justifies 
I would imagine, in Indonesian eyes, a threat to use weapons which are inherently genocidal and which will have any kind of use, will have major human and environmental impacts, certainly for Southeast Asia. So trying to raise those sorts of questions is, the way, is, is what that, that paper is about. So in a sense, are you saying that you can expand the Indonesian point of view to other countries in the Asia-Pacific area? Well, I think the first thing to notice is that Indonesia um, was an active su supporter of the ban treaty uh, at the UN. It signed it. It's on the air verge of ratifying it. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen very soon. But what Australians have to realise is that in the ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia, 13 of them, all but one voted at the UN to support this. Most of them have signed it and they're on their way to ratifying it. And again, in the South Pacific, which has a lot of countries in it, they're small to be sure, but they count. And virtually all of them at the, the treaty negotiations voted to support the treaty. Most of them are signed on. Many of them now have ratified it. In other words, it's not just a matter of Indonesia, but we are really isolated in our part of the world. And I guess that's one of the things the Australians don't get. We, have, we are so deeply embedded in a kind of cultural way to the American way of thinking. When it's looked at from Indonesia, which is you know, hardly a, a kind of pro-China, pro-communist country, but it is a non-aligned country, from that standpoint, Australia looks very odd. It is the odd country out in our part of the world. And as people point out, New Zealand is definitely going the Australian way. That's right. I think Australians need to really remember how extraordinarily important what happened in New Zealand, particularly with the influence of a, of a peace movement, with the Longy government in the 1980s, with the passage of the, of the legislation which banned nuclear-powered ships and nuclear-armed ships and aircraft from entering New Zealand in 1986. That was, that was I think, the single most important nuclear disarmament action anywhere. Now, there are following on from that, there are nuclear weapon-free zones um, in a large part of the world. But as a country, New Zealand stepped out of that nuclear part of the alliance. And look, it's still there. They haven't fallen over. And interestingly, it's very clear in New, if you go to New Zealand, this is not a labour project. It's not a peace movement project. It's something that both sides of politics that famous bipartisanship on defence policy, uh, which in Australia leads us to being plugged into the American nuclear alliance, in New Zealand, there's no argument anymore. That's over. New Zealand will always stay out of any nuclear alliance. And good on them. Well, imagining the possible, how do you imagine it? Look, I suppose it's best to be, to set out a couple, you know, there are three actual steps along the way before you start to think about that question of the elimination of nuclear weapons. I mean, we're talking about overturning 70 years of the most important pro-military and industrial project in human history. The first is, you know, getting many more countries to sign up to and to ratify it. And I think that will happen. But that creates the pressure, the diplomatic pressure, uh, on countries uh, in the nuclear-supporting camp like Australia. 
The second is to be looking out for and really working hard on the first of those nuclear-supporting countries, Australia, Japan, South Korea, any of the NATO countries, particularly Norway, Netherlands, Germany, for them to say, well, we are actually beginning to think about whether um, relying on American uh, extended nuclear deterrence, the nuclear umbrella, is actually a good idea. And certainly uh, in countries like Germany and in Norway and the Netherlands, there are some serious movements about that. But that's the second thing you've got to look at. And the third is the one that might sound utterly impossible, but I think is both possible and essential to think about. And that is looking for and working towards the first country, which is a nuclear-possessing country, beginning to question its own policies about relying on uh, nuclear weapons. Now, you might think I'm talking about North Korea, but I'm, I'm actually not. I'm actually thinking very seriously about the United Kingdom, about Britain. And again, this sounds, might sound particularly ridiculous now that we've got the ridiculous AUKUS caucus uh, happening. But I think, in fact, it's quite a serious matter. And it's something which has been talked about quite a lot in Britain. And this is for one particular reason. Britain's nuclear deterrent force, which is about 300 nuclear weapons of very considerable size, are located on four ballistic missile submarines. They are all based in a place near Glasgow in Scotland called Fuss Lane, and the weapons, the warheads are stored nearby in a place called Coalport. There is nowhere else in Britain which is really very suitable to replace Fast Lane if there was any problem about it. Britain's a very crowded part of the world, particularly England. Um, and the important thing is that the Scottish National Party in Scotland now has for a very long time had a policy of saying if, it, if Scotland becomes an independent country under the SNP, then we will sign the ban treaty and go and remove those nuclear weapons from Scotland. And if there is nowhere else for them to be placed in England, and it's technically very difficult to do that, the only place they can put them, it sounds even more bizarre, but it's true, and certainly been talked about very seriously, would be to locate the British nuclear deterrent submarines in the United States. And this is because they already, all the missiles on that British nuclear deterrent submarines, they're actually not. British or British made, they're American made and they're leased from the Americans and every year or so each submarine goes over to uh, a port in Georgia uh, to change over the rented missiles for replacements and upgrades. In other words, Britain's a very dependent nuclear power. Now, will the SNP hold such a policy if Scottish, Scotland becomes independent? We don't know. Will Scotland become independent? We don't know. But these are actually pretty real questions at the moment. Even if an independent Scotland made such a move, how would France behave? How would America behave? How would the rump of little England behave? Pretty heavy stuff. But you've got to imagine that possibility as, a, as something realistic um, and work towards it. And I think it's entirely plausible. Doesn't think it'll happen, but you can see a politically plausible pathway to that happening. And so the imagination is really pretty important in this role. You believe it could happen or you don't believe it could happen? 
yes, I believe it could happen. A, a lot has to you know, be in place for that to happen. I don't think there are many people who would say, A, Scotland will not go independent. I think it could well. There's a very good chance of it. We can't guarantee that the SNP would hold to its policies on these matters. I mean, we've all seen governments or political parties sort of fudge out at the last minute on these, but that's a matter of the, the peace movement and Scottish national movement putting pressure on the government. So, yes, that's possible. Uh, will it happen? I don't know. I hope it will happen. But it's not... Let me put it this way. It's not as implausible as thinking that the balance of nuclear deterrent is going to prevent war forever. And that's really what the nuclear optimists, the people who say nuclear weapons are good for us, that's what they're banking on. Not that it'll prevent war for the next year, the next decade. It's got to do it forever. That's the whole point. So if you, you ask me, is it possible? Well, I think it's more possible to imagine Britain becoming uh, a threshold nuclear disarming power than it is to think that nuclear weapons will keep, keep us safe forever. Is, in a sense, Israel a dark horse in this when they don't even admit that they have nuclear weapons? Well, it's not a very dark horse in the sense that everyone knows they've got nuclear weapons and there is this really disgusting and counterproductive uh, behaviour by the Australian government following on from the United States to accept Israel's neither confirm nor deny policy. Uh, the Americans, uh, going back to Richard Nixon's time, when, Israel, when they became aware that Israel had, was indeed building nuclear weapons and did intend to deploy them and may have deployed them uh, in the Six-Day War, the Americans came to a formulation to protect their diplomatic good graces by saying, accepting a promise from Israel that Israel would not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East. Well, of course, you know, they have in fact done that, and that's precisely why the Iranians are thinking very seriously about nuclear weapons. But there is this, it's not just a double standard, it's almost like something like from the Wizard of Oz, of not looking behind the curtain to see what the wizard actually looks like. Um, this is absurd stuff which corrodes trust in international relations. The first thing is, recognise Israel has nuclear weapons. It is the only country in the Middle East that's got nuclear weapons, and that is a deeply dangerous fact. Finally, Richard, what sort of feedback have you had on this paper? It's really actually quite interesting, quite a lot. And one thing that's been quite, I've felt quite um, chuffed about is that some people have really responded to my argument against the Australian government that the starting point for discussions, because clearly there are two treaties. There's the Nuclear Ban Treaty and there's the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty um, goes back to 1968 and it's about non-proliferation. And it's, I think, had some fairly good effects in, in restraining the growth in the number of countries that uh, have nuclear weapons. However, it also has an article, Article 6, which says that the states' parties, the countries that have signed up for that treaty, will negotiate toward, in good faith towards uh, a reduction in the nuclear arms race. Well, since 1968, we haven't had much progress of any real importance on that. 
And I think it's really important for uh, Australia to be pushed to uh, live up to its obligations there. But we don't want to. And the United States doesn't want to, and France doesn't want to, and I don't think China wants to uh, on this matter. So some people say the only way we can proceed is if the ban treaty folks sit down with the nuclear proliferation treaty folks and we, we, we come to some compromise. The point about that is the ban treaty is about nuclear disarmament. The nuclear non-proliferation treaty has got a disarmament element in it, but it has never seriously acted on it. And I reckon, what are we up to now? Half a century since that treaty was passed? I think that's long enough. We should recognise that the, real, the tool we need to use is the ban treaty. And I've been really pleased at the number of people who have said, OK, um, you're making me think about this. I've been a supporter of the NPT for a long time, and I think we should support the NPT, but on nuclear, on nuclear non-proliferation. But on disarmament, it's a dead letter. And I've been pleased by the number of people who are beginning to recognise that. And that shifts the kind of atmosphere about, ah, OK, the ban treaty could be more useful to us. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, Jan. Professor Richard Tanter. And do look up his paper, Imagining the Possible Australia-Pacific Prospects for the Nuclear Ban Treaty. Five million people amidst a war zone are creating a new society based on principles that are near the hearts of many radicals in Australia. Welcome to AANES, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, formerly known as Rojava. Thursday at midday to 1pm, join me, Joseph Toscano, for a 10-part series of conversations with members of a civil diplomacy centre in the city of Posts from Ennis, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, a flourishing radical experiment in direct democracy in the midst of a war zone, as part of 3CR's Acting Up series on Thursday at midday on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Global Intifada, bringing you current affairs through revolutionary and protest music from around the world. 
every Thursday afternoon from 5 till 6 on 3CR. Because music is our bomb. Unfortunately, the retirement of Kate Lewis as editor of the Western Saharan Bulletin meant that I no longer have access to the up-to-date information about the situation in Western Sahara, the refugee camps and actions to facilitate the long-overdue referendum on self-determination. But I now have closer contact with the representative of the Polisario Front for Australia and New Zealand, and that's Kamal Fidel. And the Polisario Front is a UN-recognised liberation movement for Western Sahara. So today, Kamal, two issues. One, the court decision in Europe, and the second, warning that tensions are rising in Western Sahara. But beginning with that decision by a European court, the third regarding trade and fisheries agreements that only apply to Morocco and not the natural resource-rich Western Sahara. When did these court cases begin? Well, the legal cases started in 2012, uh, in order to uh, put an end to European involvement uh, in the uh, plunder of the resources of Western Sahara. So the European Union tends to do these agreements with Morocco, but they were not making it clear in the beginning that they don't involve Western Sahara. But in, in fact, they were involving Western Sahara waters and also uh, agricultural products, that's the fisheries and agricultural products. But in 2019, they uh, extended in writing and clearly the agreement to involve Western Sahara. That's why we appealed the decision in 2019 to make sure that uh, we protect and uh, preserve the resources of Western Sahara uh, and all the decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union were very clear that Western Sahara is not part of Morocco, uh, that the people of Western Sahara have a right to self-determination, and that any exploitation of their resources have to enjoy their consent and also to be beneficial to them. Uh, But uh, the European Union could not prove that these uh, conditions are met or fulfilled. In, in, in Western Sahara, they tried to do, you know, something to give uh, that, you know, they have had consultations with representatives of the Sahrawi people. But in fact, those consultations were uh, with, uh, you know, Moroccan officials and organizations set up by Morocco. So it was just a kind of window dressing uh, and not a real and what is needed also is not only consultations, but consent. And consent has to come from the real representatives of the people of Western Sahara. And that's what's very interesting in the last court decision, that they said that the Polisario is the representative of the people of Western Sahara, and that it also has legal standing to present cases in front of courts uh, on behalf of the people of Western Sahara. So where does it go from here? 
the court has given two months period for the European Union to uh, uh, give them time if they want to appeal the decision, which is most likely because they always try to gain time. And uh, we uh, hope you know, that the European Union and its institutions uh, respect the law and respect the decision of the uh, Court of Justice and implement it uh, in its uh, letter and spirit uh, and respect, you know, the legal process uh, because uh, this is uh, a very important institution in the European Union, the Court of Justice. Uh, and it's the decisions are very uh, important and have to be respected and not trying to go around them. So that's what we hope, because we see a lot of uh, lecture about uh, you know, democracy, respect of law from the European Union. But this is now a test whether the European Union would respect its own law and the, the decision of its own court of justice, or, otherwise, or they will uh, try to uh, circumvent it and try to uh, not respect it, in fact. So we will see what happens. So it's not just fisheries, it's more, it's agriculture as well that's been stolen? Yeah, uh, yes, this because uh, Morocco exports agricultural products from the Sahara to Europe and uh, Morocco benefits uh, from uh, Tariff preferences granted to it by the European Union. Profits, you know, I think the, the, the whole thing is about 500 million or 600 million a year that Morocco benefits from Western Sahara in terms of agricultural and fisheries products. What about compensation for the people of Western Sahara for all that's been stolen over the years? Well, this is an important question. We know for a fact that the people of Western Sahara and have never benefited, and it's been over 40 years. So they live in poverty and under oppression. Uh, you don't find uh, at least one university in Western Sahara or any proper hospital or road or in infrastructure except those which are done purposely to exploit the resources. So this is terrible. This is a tragedy. It's a scandal. What we want, first of all, is to stop the plunder, protect our resources for our future, for the, you know, our people and for our country. Uh, that is the, the first step. With regard to compensation, it is another thing to think about and to decide. But the main task now is to see the European Union respect its own law and the decisions of its own court of justice and to end this exploitation, this plunder, which benefits an occupying power that is involved in a criminal war at the moment against our people and abuses human rights and makes our people live in poverty, destitution, 
and as second citizens in their own country. Because as you know, Morocco has moved thousands of its own settlers to be involved in the fisheries, in the exploitation of phosphates, and also in the exploitation of our cultural products in, in Western Sahara. And they get the jobs and they get the benefits and employment while our people are suffering under occupation. What has been the reaction from Morocco to this latest court decision? Well, for, for Morocco, uh, and uh, unfortunately also for the European, they say it's business as usual. We don't care. We're going to keep going, doing what we, what we are doing. This is incredible. And they don't have any respect for the court decision. Uh, and they usually get away uh, very clear violation of law and double standards from the European Union. So, yeah, that's what they say. They don't care. They're going to keep doing it unless something is done. Well, what's the point of having these courts then? Well, for us, it's very important. We respect the law. We, it's a means for us to obtain justice. And uh, also, it's, uh, it's clearly very important uh, and historical decision by the European Court of Justice in the sense that it reaffirmed its previous decisions that Western Sahara is a separate and distinct territory from Morocco, and that Polisario, the liberation movement, is the representative of the people of Western Sahara and that it has legal standing and is able to bring legal cases before any court of it all around the world and particularly in the European Union. So these are very important decisions and it's a very good, I mean, I mean important achievements. Uh, we will continue to to seek justice, both through legal means, but also through armed struggle against the occupation in self-defense of our people and our homeland. Are there other countries who are doing similar to what the European Union has been doing? Well, you have here close by in New Zealand, New Zealand companies uh, balance agri-nutrients and Ravens Down are involved in the exploitation of uh, the plunder of Western Sahara phosphates in what has become known as the blood phosphate, you know. And it, this is another terrible example of the defiance and disrespect of international legality and law uh, and uh, criminal action, you know, against our people and against our country argue with them, but they are not listening also. They are very selfish. They don't care about the fate of the Sahrawi people as long as they benefit from it, from these illegal trade. Yet there was some success here in Australia. That's right. We are delighted and grateful to the Australian companies that they have decided to uh, end their involvement uh, and listen and respect uh, law in pivot in, in Melbourne and uh, CSBP West Farmers in, in WA uh, and Impact Fertilizers in, in Tasmania. They have all ended their involvement, and which is a good example. 
uh, in addition to many other companies all over the world also. And I believe there is a fair bit of pressure on New Zealand to stop importing this phosphate. Yes, yes. We have a very, uh, you know, active, good citizens of New Zealand who have been protesting and trying to uh, uh, make sure that the uh, New Zealand people know about what's going on and that the government is aware and they have been uh, doing incredible things there. Very positive uh, and very active small group of people who are determined to make sure that New Zealand image and credibility is not affected by few businessmen who have chosen to be on the wrong side of history, uh, on the side of aggressors, on a, the side of an absolute authoritarian regime in Morocco, which is real, ruled by a king who's number six most rich monarch in the world, thanks to the exploitation of Western Sahara resources. And uh, they want to do the right thing. They want to... Uh, you know, because they believe in justice and they know that this is a very wrong thing to do in New Zealand. And they know that the, the cause of Western Sahara people is a just cause, supported by international law, international legality, United Nations resolutions, uh, and that these people have been oppressed, kicked out of their homeland, uh, their resources plundered. And that's for a long time. 45 years and that's enough you know unfortunately injustice continues in western sahara without much attention from the international community and the people of western sahara in a sense have had enough what's the situation at the moment well terrible uh, as you probably know, the, the case of Sultana Khaya and her family in Bushdur in the occupied Western Sahara is just an example of women who have been under house arrest for a year, beaten, sexually abused, and prevented from leaving their own home in their own country. In, in their house, they break into their house, they beat them, they throw awful substances with awful odor in the house to make them suffer more. They came one day also and infected them with the COVID and didn't let them get any medical attention. And this has been happening, you know, with impunity. And it's not acceptable. While also the United Nations is present in Western Sahara. Two days ago, uh, an American delegation from the United States Embassy in Babat tried to see Sultana Khaya, but the Moroccans prevented them from visiting her because they don't want them to see what's happening. On the other hand, you know, the Sahara refugees continue to also live in terrible conditions, 45 years of exile in refugee camps in the desert in the middle of nowhere. And Morocco has started also the war in November last year, military action against 
our people, violating the ceasefire, the agreement with the United Nations. And we don't hear anything about it. We don't hear anything about it from the United Nations or from the international community. On the contrary, you find Donald Trump in the dying days of his administration giving Morocco a recognition of something he doesn't have and Morocco is not entitled to. That is over Western Sahara in exchange for Morocco establishing relations with Israel. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has not, uh, and uh, we are expecting to see, you know, positive action from this new administration in the United States. Sooner rather than later. We hope so. What about the situation for the people in both the occupied territory and in the camps in Western Algeria with COVID? Well, we see that uh, in, in the occupied areas, Morocco has not uh, imposed restrictions on Moroccan settlers coming from the north who have been infected with COVID because they don't care about what happens to the Sahrawi population in the occupied territories and would rather to see them all die so they can have the territory and keep exploitation, exploiting its resources. Um, we haven't also seen any vaccination in the camps. Uh, we have been fortunate that there hasn't been uh, much, uh, many cases, there haven't been many cases in the, in the camps. Of course, there have been some, and we've lost, uh, you know, some people, uh, unfortunately, to like any other places in the world. So you can imagine that in the refugee camps where there isn't uh, much, uh, um, no equipment and lack of medicine and uh, food and things like that, that people will be impacted. But um, I understand there there has been, the situation is under control in the refugee camps so far. When you're talking about the human rights abuses in the occupied territories, the UN has a presence there. What do they do about it? Nothing. And this has been a problem. We have to asked the United Nations to include the human rights monitoring in the mandate of the United Nations mission, MINOSO in Western Sahara, but the uh, Security Council, they have uh, managed to make sure that uh, this issue is not included because they know very well that Morocco continues to abuse the human rights and they want to protect Morocco. So the mission is there. It's, uh, it's like, you know, under uh, hostage. They are hostages to the Moroccans. They can't do anything. Morocco controls their movements. Morocco monitors uh, everything they do. They, uh, they can stop them. And um, it's a useless at the moment mission without any benefit to the local population. And it has failed terribly in its main task, which is to organize a referendum of self-determination for the people of Western Sahara. So we have 30 years after this mission has arrived. And we have, you know, they spent about $2 billion without doing anything and even not criticizing Morocco for its human rights abuses or its violation of the ceasefire and the resumption of hostilities in Western Sahara. 
We've pointed out many times that Western Sahara is the last occupied country in Africa. What is the role for the African Union? Very important role. And it has been uh, playing a positive role in general, the African Union, uh, given you know, its power and influence. Uh, the African Union uh, has admitted the Sahara Republic as a, as a member in 1982. Uh, every you know African Union summit there have been strong uh, resolutions adopted, and it has appointed the you know a special uh, envoy for Western Sahara. But um, Morocco is not allowing the African Union. To uh, in Western Sahara, they, there have been, you know, African Union observers in Western Sahara. They kick them out and they don't let them come back. So it's an important organization. It has played a, an important role. And we know that the peace, peace plan, that uh, the settlement plan was initially uh, adopted by the African Union, but then adopted by the United Nations. Well, next Tuesday, Kamal, there's a chance for listeners to this program to hear Australian and international guests talking a little bit more about the situation, where people can go for this? Yes. <clears throat> On the 12th of October, uh, the, the Australian West Sahara Association will be organising uh, an event uh, online uh, which uh, involves uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the uh, former Labour leader in, in the United Kingdom and current member of Parliament uh, in Britain. Uh, also, we have uh, Francesco Bastagli, who is a former United Nations uh, representative for Western Sahara, uh, with uh, a lot of knowledge about the issue and experience in, in dealing with, uh, with uh, as, as a UN representative in Western Sahara. We have also uh, Tim Ayers, uh, Senator Tim Ayers from uh, the Labour Party, uh, who will be uh, speaking. And uh, we have uh, Golris Gaharman, from, uh, a member of parliament from uh, uh, the uh, uh, Greens in uh, New Zealand. And myself, uh, Lynn Allison, as a former senator and leader of the Democrats in, in Australia, who will be uh, uh, running the... And it will be both uh, available on Zoom and also on uh, Facebook. And for further information, people can go to www.awsa.org.au. That's Australia Western Sahara Association. Or just search the Australia Western Sahara Association on, on the internet or on Facebook and they will find um, the details and information about the event and I hope, uh, you know, as many people as possible uh, join us on Tuesday the 12th of October. Thank you, Kamal, and the struggle goes on. People are not going to give in. Not at all. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to your listeners. And I was speaking with Kamal Fadel, who's the representative in Australia and New Zealand of the Polisario Front, which is a UN-recognised 
Liberation Movement for Western Sahara. And that event is next Tuesday, the 12th of October. So look up the webpage or Facebook of AWSA, A-W-S-A. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Tune in to Stick Together. All about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Recently, IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, invited concerned citizens to write a submission focusing on a people's inquiry, exploring the case for an independent and peaceful Australia. Let's talk. What are the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in US-led wars and the US alliance? What are the alternatives? Let's have a people-led national conversation about the US-Australia alliance, including the social, political military and defence, economic and environmental impacts. Today I'm speaking with Bevan Ramden from IPAN. But first, Bevan, there's another submission. What's that one about? IPAN put out a statement about um, the Afghanistan war after the uh, disaster there with the withdrawal of the troops. And um, in our committee meeting, we said, look, we ought to... um, 
or to make a submission to this one that Jackie Lambie, the MP, has initiated in Parliament. It's a Senate inquiry or the Foreign Affairs and Trade Committee has initiated an inquiry into Afghan the Afghanistan war and said, well, we're making statements about it. We'd better make a submission. So I took on the, the job with the help of others to produce the submission. And um, it has gone in now. I think it's it's got to be in by the 8th of October. We've met the deadline. Uh, it was pretty vital, I think, Jan, because you know, there's a lot to be learnt, lessons to be learnt. I mean, government doesn't learn lessons from these wars, Iraq, Vietnam and so on. And if they're having an inquiry into it, let's put forward lessons that we think should be learned from going into that what was an illegal war. Um, it was not countenanced by the United Nations. It did, did not fall under the jurisdiction of ANZUS. But nevertheless, Howard pushed our forces in there with the United States. Maybe you'll be interested in some of the um, recommendations that IPAN has made in this submission, Jan. For example, IPAN recommends that before any decision is made by government to commit our forces to an expeditionary war, that's an overseas one, it must first clearly state its justification for such a commitment and demonstrate it is in compliance with the United Nations Charter and international law. Secondly, it must clearly demonstrate that such action is vital to the security of the Australian people. Thirdly, it must clearly state the objectives of such an engagement and the progress for evaluating and reporting on progress towards those objectives. And it must clearly state the exit strategy for such an engagement. Um, IPAN says these points should be made public to facilitate community and parliamentary scrutiny discussion before a decision commit is made. And finally, it must be subject to a parliamentary vote, debate and, and vote. That's what we've said for any future, and we hope there won't be any future expeditionary wars with the United States. But if we go overseas, these are the things that should be done to make sure it is legal and that the Australian people support it. And when will these be put to the Senate? The Senate is making an interim report, I think, by the 29th of November, and the final report will be made to Parliament in the first sitting week of February. Um, so interesting to see what that finally says, that report. Uh, it's interesting that IPAN has got its own inquiry going into the costs and consequences of these wars, and our report will be made... Um, in the first sitting of February too, our first parliamentary sitting in February next year. Jan, we also said in, in our, addressed in our, our submission, the costs of Australia's engagement in, in Afghanistan comes under these headings. There is a human cost to the Australian community and members of the, sold, of, of the Defence Force and their families in particular. Uh, there is a financial cost to an Australian taxpayer there's awful human costs to the people of Afghanistan. There's a cost to our international reputation and the cost to our freedoms and democratic rights. And so there's paragraphs on each of these things. And uh, um, Alison Bronowski, who's an ex-diplomat, wrote the bit on um, a cost to Australia's reputation in the international community. She sums up by saying, the war in Afghanistan has won Australia no friends except among equally culpable nations. It has diminished our influence as a middle power 
has eroded our international influence, particularly in Asia. Australia's view is rarely sought now in any international forum where the United States is present, which is why we were not needed in the six-party consultations on North Korea. We are irrelevant in climate change negotiations where the Biden administration does take a lead. We are of so little importance to the US that the president cannot name our prime minister. She says, throughout the 20 years of the Afghan war, Australia has reduced the resources devoted to DFAT, that's the um, uh, diplomatic corps, and to overseas aid. At a time when avoiding war is more ever than ever important, this is a retrograde tendency which can be expected to have serious consequences. Looking now to the People's Inquiry, you invited people to make a submission. What were the terms of reference for that inquiry? It was into the costs and the consequences of Australia being involved in US-led wars like Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and so on. The costs and consequences of, of being in those wars and, in fact, being involved with the US alliance and other alternatives. And we've received 260 submissions from people from all walks of life. We've had ex-military, uh, retired military uh, personnel have made submissions. Lawyers, um, writers and academics, trade unionists, uh, and just anyone who is concerned about peace um, has made a submission. And 260 is quite impressive. And that's being processed by a panel in the areas of defence, um, and that's uh, Dr. Vince Scapatura um, in the areas of, um, of uh, diplomacy and foreign affairs. It's uh, Alison Bronowski uh, in, in, uh, on environment, the impact of these wars on environment, on the First Nations peoples, on um, economics of Australia. You know, you know, that's money that could have been spent better elsewhere. I think those are the main ones anyway. And the panel are looking at that at the moment and they're, they're moving to produce some interim reports and then a final report under the leadership of Kelly, Kelly um, Tranto. Um, she's a lawyer and human rights activist, activist. Now, when we get that report out, it's going to be presented through some sympathetic politicians to Parliament and um, we'll widely distribute it. We hope it will contribute to um, um, looking at Australian foreign policy. IPAN stands for a, a peaceful Australia seeking mutually beneficial relations with all countries and keeping out of these wars. A foreign policy which implements that is going to be to the great benefit of the Australian people and um, uh, for our, our grandchildren and their grandchildren. Can you give us a, a couple of examples of what people have written? I've got some of them here. Before, in, in, in front of each um, submission that people have made, they just make a little summary of why they are sending a submission into the IPAN inquiry. And um, here's one from Cameron Leckie. He's a former major in the ADF who served in Iraq. And he writes, I served as an officer in the Australian Army for 24 years. I believe that our alliance with the United States is detrimental to our national security and as such should be reviewed. He continues, based on the conclusion that the US is the world's most dangerous nation, this paper of mine will propose that Australia should move 
from a strategy of strategic dependence on the United States to one of strategic independence. This is assessed as being the approach most likely to ensure Australia's future security in an increasingly unstable world. Linda de Boulay wrote, I'm frustrated that Western society towards the accomplishments of our war heroes. She goes on to say, war is hell on earth. War causes people who would normally be peaceful people be forced to take a side and kill to protect their family's honour and beliefs. Australians don't have the death penalty, yet we send our defence forces off to kill people who have a different version of life that doesn't comply with ours. Who are we as Australians to judge or overrule any other countries in the world after our treatment of our own innocent Indigenous people with the extravagant lifestyles we have when compared to other countries owing to the stolen Indigenous generation lands and resources? Rosemary Morrow from Blue Blue Mountains writes, I'm profoundly concerned for the potential of Australian foreign policy of alignment with the US to backfire, and it is provocative. She continues, From years of working in countries engaged in civil war and recovering from war, such as Timor-Leste, Cambodia, Vietnam and Afghanistan, and work with the Pacific Island nations, I have been aware how much Australia must be independent and peaceful facilitator of health, environment and prosperity in our region. Australia is compromised by being engaged with an increasingly difficult USA and it has not served us to be with it in such recent engagements in Iraq, Afghanistan and longer ago Vietnam. I'm also a Quaker, deeply convinced that the way to peace is peace and that we will be trusted and consulted when we are independent. The Asia-West Pacific region requires an independent politics and future. So in this submission, I make a serious engaged request that all Australia's policies from now on be directed to becoming a peaceful and independent nation. What's well, a few of them, Jen? You must be very, very happy about the response that you had. The number of submissions is great and the actual content is, is uh, very uplifting when you read it. It gives you heart that there's so many people who think this way and are concerned enough to make a submission and likewise in the petitions and we should talk about AUKUS and the bit submarines the petition that has been put out by IPAN and the um, anti-basis group has got nearly 15,000 signatures on it that's happened all very quickly Jan the, the government made that announcement about AUKUS or how you pronounce it AUKUS packed with the US and the UK and this acquiring nuclear submarines on the 16th of September, within two days, the outrage resulted in a meeting, a Zoom meeting, with 120 people from, you know, the mailing lists of We Can Get Out from IPAN and the Anti-Basis Group and everyone else. And there was great concern about this announcement of getting Australia into a new pact, war pact, with the US and the UK and, uh, and of course, the submarines. That has resulted in a statement being issued and a petition now that petition, so say it's got 15,000, close to 15,000 signatures on it, and I'd like to read a little bit of it out, if I may. The actual number is 14,877, and it's headed, No Nuclear Submarines, End US Dominance, Health Care, Not Warfare. And it goes on to say, The behind-closed-door commitment of Australia to a trilateral security agreement with the United Kingdom and the United States AUKUS, 
and a submarine fleet shows a complete disregard for the democratic process and undermines our sovereignty. It is shocking that the decision to build nuclear-powered submarines and expand US troops, planes, warships, bombers and armoury stationed on Australian territory was made in secret without any public consultation or parliamentary debate. A nuclear-powered submarine fleet will represent a fundamental threat to the environment and global peace. These submarines put nuclear reactors in the ports of Australia, encourage the proliferation of nuclear weapons and are potential sites for nuclear accidents. The submarines will also impose an extraordinary economic burden on the Australian people. Funding for health care, welfare, education and the environment will be raided. These resources should be directed to the social and economic needs of workers and the Australian people and the rebuilding of a local, sustainable manufacturing industry. The AUKUS defence pact tied to these submarines is a threat to global peace and will undermine Australia's sovereignty. Australia cannot ex exercise an independent foreign policy if our military is reliant on the United States for technology and support. AUKUS is a step backwards for diplomacy and international relations. It represents a Cold War mentality that brings with it the same repression, conflict and potentially war. The Australian government must withdraw from AUKUS, stop the development of nuclear submarines and end integration with the US military. For these reasons, we the undersigned are calling on the Australian government to fully withdraw from AUKUS and the commitment to build nuclear submarines. I'll say that's, that has drawn nearly 15,000 signatures in a very, very short period of time. Is the petition still open? It's still open. And if anyone listening to your program, Jan, would like to sign that petition, and I'm sure there could be many who would, simply go to the IPAN page. That's ipan.org.au. ipan.org.au. And the front page, we've got a, a part you click on to sign that petition. I was listening to Malcolm Turnbull speaking at the National Press Club, and... Um, he mentioned something which hasn't been, I haven't seen elsewhere. This, the nuclear technology that the United States uses on its submarines uses the most highly enriched uranium used in the, in the um, nuclear bombs and weapons. And so used in these submarines, in a sense, those submarines, if there's an accident, they're a ticking nuclear bomb and they could be stationed in our harbours. He said that the, actually the French have a used low-grade uranium, which is not, not as near, near as dangerous. But um, he wasn't actually speaking out against nuclear subs, but he was totally opposed to the, the highly enriched um, nuclear weapons-grade uranium being used in the subs, and he said it makes it very dangerous. And I think that's a point that needs to be brought to the attention of everyone, because there's, <laughs> we're pretty concerned about nuclear accidents, but in any case, the commitment to these long-distance, long-range subs is only for war purposes. That's all they're buying them for. Apparently, the diesel-electric ones that the French were making are very suitable for the coastal areas around Australia, a more defensive operation. I'm sure, Bevan, you can remember the demonstrations maybe in the 80s against the nuclear-powered warships 
that they bought or they tried to bring into the ports of Australia. Exactly, and that's going to be happening again because if the submarines come in, in any case, this AUKUS agreement facilitates the Americans bringing their warships into our ports and we don't know whether they're carrying nuclear weapons anyway and they don't declare it. And New Zealand's pretty smart. They said, if you won't declare whether they've got nuclear weapons on or not, then we won't let them in anyway. They won't let their American warships in because they won't declare whether they have nuclear weapons on board. That should be the similar thing we should push for in Australia. Keep out American warships, which may be carrying nuclear weapons and we don't know. And for that matter, the AUKUS agreement allows them to land bombers, B-1 bombers in Northern Territory, and those are bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons also. What's even worse is that they allowed now to store, the Americans are allowed to store war uh, munitions, fuel, spare parts, armoured vehicles and tanks up in the Northern Territory. Now, why would you want to store all those war materials on our soil unless it wasn't in preparation for war? That's what should get us up in arms. Um, this just involves us as a, a staging uh, platform for the Americans to launch a war up in the We know who the war would look likely to be against. It's something to think about, isn't it, Jan? It sounds as though IPAN's got a lot of work ahead of it in the next while. We have, and uh, what we, we want, like to see is more and more people who are concerned about this getting involved and engaged. This is between a number of the peace groups, including IPAN and the anti-basis group, to form a coalition, national national coalition, to fight AUKUS and the submarines. I'm thinking back years ago to the Vietnam moratorium campaign and that huge coalition that was formed then of all groups who were concerned. And that's what's needed now because environmental groups, uh, anti-nuclear groups, peace groups, anti-basis groups, they all have a stake in this. And it could be a very large coalition and could embrace a lot of people and I'm looking forward to seeing that getting going. Where's the starting point? Well, a letter's going out in the next week to hundreds of organisations to, to gauge the interest. And then, the, of course, if there is a lot of interest, there'll be um, uh, a Zoom, like these days, a Zoom, Zoom meeting, of, a national Zoom meeting will be a big one, um, to see whether a coalition can be formed, what it would be called, and how it then it might operate. So I think we'd like to keep you informed, Jan, or you might like to be kept informed on the progress with that. And... Um, in a, in a month's time, we should know whether that's going to proceed or not. And what's the best way for people to contact IPAN? The best way at the moment is to go to that IPAN homepage, ipan.org.au, which has information always about this sort of thing, about these developments, ipan.org.au. Okay, thanks, Bevan, and good luck with it all. Thank you, Jan. Thank you very much. And that was Bevan Ramston from IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network. And I always like to add, after I've spoken with Bevan, to say that he was one of the people who helped establish 3CR back in the 70s. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, on digital and online, 3CR Radical Radio. 
They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. As we all know, there is a, a new word in the dictionary, and that word is AUKUS. Plenty of fun poked at the word, but today activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg looks beyond the words to more serious connotations. I spoke with Jacob at the weekend and pointed out there have been thousands of words and hundreds of viewing hours devoted to the AUKUS, and asked him what he would like to add to the conversation. Well, what I'd like to add to the conversation is an understanding of exactly what it is to start with. Because at this point, we don't even know what AUKUS is. It's been called a pact, an agreement, an alliance, even a forever partnership. And um, none of those words actually mean anything. So 
to get some understanding of what AUKUS is, apart from we're going to build nuclear submarines, we're going to have more troops here, we're going to host weapons. How many weapons? How many troops? What kind of submarines? Where are we getting the submarines from? How does it change our foreign policy? How does it impact on Australian law? We know nothing about any of those issues. So how do you proceed? Well, how do, how do we proceed? I mean, look, talk about the secrecy to start with. Australia has a method, you know, for all, for all its faults, the Australian system of government has a method for introducing treaties and relationships with other countries. And when we enter into a treaty, it's discussed in a whole range of, of forum, not necessarily public, but within parliament, within government departments, talking to stakeholders. This has come through. This was so, um, what's the word? So Such a surprise to people, even in the higher echelons of the military, that the Australian government has now had to employ councillors to deal with military planners because of the trauma they're suffering over having their immediate focus changed so suddenly by government decree. This is not the actions of a democratic country. So that's the first that's the first thing I think we need to do is get the details. Because while this was sprung on us on what was it, the sixteenth of September Australian time, it wasn't just decided overnight. These kind of decisions, these kind of announcements take a year or more in the planning. So the fact that they they kept it secret, not only from us, but from the whole military, that it directly impacts that France didn't have a an inkling until a few days before, is, I think, beyond nuclear weapons, beyond troop deployments and everything, the fact that the Australian government can change our military posture and our foreign alliances like that at the drop of a hat scares the hell out of me. So getting all that information would be a starter. Well, knowing the, the track record of this government with secrecy, that's going to be quite a job. It's going to be quite a job. And, and I, I guess because of the, the limited parliamentary time and all the rest of it because of the COVID pandemic, it's going to be hard to actually get people to ask questions and, and in um, Senate estimates committees and all the rest of it. And also because of the nature there is, this is so big that even if and when when Parliament is resumed, I'm not that paranoid, uh, when Parliament is resumed, there'll be hardly enough time to discuss every issue of the AUKUS arrangement. So that's the first thing. And then, and then the other thing that concerns me is the talk about the submarines. Well, it sort of concerns me. Everyone is focused on the fact that we're going to have nuclear submarines, and it is a huge thing. But, you know, it's my belief we were always going to have nuclear submarines. The French submarines were initially designed as nuclear ones, and as early as 2015, when we first entered to deal with them, there was talk about, let, you know, we were going to get 12, and they were going to come in, in um, batches of three, and there was talk of having the first two batches, so the first six, as conventionally powered, and then looking at the transition to, to nukes. Now, that was seen back in 2015, that was seen so far down the track that it was just talk. And it was, yeah, yeah, talk, 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 and we had so many other issues that we needed to work on. But the Australian government has always wanted nuclear power submarines. 
and nuclear-powered submarines, of course, aren't for the protection of Australia's coast. Therefore, forward deployment to be part of the American war machine firmly aimed at China. And that's just the, that's just the fact of it. And China in, I think it was July, might have been early August, the Global Times, made an announcement warning Australia not to get involved in American military plans against China vis-a-vis Taiwan because it would be bad for Australia and they would attack Australia as Australia was a non-nuclear nation with conventional weapons and take out key American assets in Australia. Now, that has been stated. But now, while we haven't got nuclear weapons, we have nuclear submarines, does that increase the, the chance of attack? But nuclear submarines aside, that's the big, I guess, sexy, pointy issue that everyone's talking about. There are so many other aspects that have been hinted on um, at through AUKUS. Um, Peter Dutton saying, for example, that it means increased troop deployments. He said words like, let me just have a look at my notes here. I want to use the exact words. So I do have an aspiration to make sure that we can increase the number of troops through the rotations. The air capability be enhanced, our maritime capability enhanced, the force posture enhanced, and it includes basing and includes the storage of different ordinances. Now, only a couple of years ago during the Trump administration, the Secretary of Defence, Mark Esper, was in Sydney, and he was talking about looking for a place in the region to host nuclear and hypersonic weapons. Now, when Peter Dutton talks about hosting different types of ordinances, what is he talking about? Is he talking about hosting American nuclear weapons in Australia? That's one thing. We're also talking about an increase to the force posture agreement. We have the Marines currently in um, Robertson Barracks in Darwin. There are a few thousand of them. Robertson Barracks have been extended and updated to hold up to 6,000 in the last 12 months. And um, how many troops are we going to have there? And how many troops are they just going to be limited to Darwin? It sounds like not. He's saying, you know, in different places in Australia, in another part of his Osmin speech. So it seems to me like just... We've always been part of the Western war machine, but it seems to me to be a further integration into it. And just on the submarines... Back to the submarines for a moment. We're talking about submarines that could be built in 20, 30 years' time, but there's also the possibility people are already talking, industry, governments and the military are already talking about the fact that that's too long and it might be a good idea for Australia to get a couple of American submarines under a Lend-Lease-style agreement and base them at HMAS Sterling in Perth. Now, there are some Los Angeles class submarines, which um, the Americans are retiring today, actually, or yesterday, the 1st of October. There's talk that a couple of those could be loaned to Australia until such time as we get our own nuclear submarine. We're not talking about 20, 30 years in the future. We're talking potentially about two years in the future. We'll bring a whole lot to them. Have you figured in the the impact of of this on the ASEAN countries and the Pacific? You know, already um, New Zealand, while they're still part of the Five Eyes Agreement, so they're not going to be be too um, critical, 
have said that Australian nuclear-powered warships wouldn't be allowed in their waters. Um, Indonesia has raised concerns. Malaysia has raised concerns. China, of course, has raised massive concerns. And today or yesterday, I think, um, um, Russia has raised concerns that Australia's nuclear submarines will not only destabilise the region, but add to the risk of nuclear proliferation. Because the other thing with the subs is that they use a highly enriched uranium. The American subs use a very highly enriched uranium, which is just about weapons grade. It's not the same as a, as a power reactor. And under the non-proliferation of the IAEA safeguards, nuclear reactors and nuclear equipment for the sake of powering maritime vessels is excluded from the reporting process that people have to go through under the agreements with the IAEA. So what that means, at the moment, every country that has a nuclear-powered submarine or a craft is also a nuclear weapon state and has a domestic nuclear industry. Now, it opens the doors for countries without a domestic nuclear industry without nuclear power or nuclear um, submarines to, under the guise of a nuclear submarine, develop highly enriched uranium. This is just, it just takes all the international safeguard agreements about nuclear proliferation out the window. And then there's the uranium in Australia. Mm. Well, uranium in Australia is, con- is going to continue being mined whether we have, well, they're going to want to continue with being mined, whether the submarines or not. I don't think that um, the amount of power, the amount of nuclear material we'll be generating through submarines would be enough to drastically increase Australia's uranium mining in itself. However, what it does do is enable the government to increase uranium mining and possibly force the um, development of a waste of a ura- uh, radioactive waste plant because you know of the things that greedies like us have been saying all along that there is a certain end user responsibility so if we're using nuclear power then of course we should be able to mine it export it and deal with the waste so it's going to it's going to increase the whole nuclear industry in Australia, but not by the percentage of uranium that will be used to power these submarines, but more politically. Is that the end of your concerns, or do you have more? Oh, no, I go, I've got more concerns, mate. Another issue about it is um, uh, technology development, okay? Now, a big part of what came out, the the OSMIN conference, the annual OSMIN conference between the Department of Defences of the United of the Ministers, the Secretary of Defence between the US and Australia, are what replaced the ANZUS talks after um, New Zealand got the short shift over its uh, nuclear policy. A lot of talk was done on technology development under the OSMIN talks this year, and the OSMIN talks have to be seen in light of the AUKUS announcement. And then following AUKUS, there was a lot of talk about the, techno- the technology cooperation in military, in, in defence industries between the United States and Australia. And that means a whole lot of weapons will be developed and designed here 
why here when we can't even make a washing machine or a car anymore, you might ask? That's because over here we have weapons testing ranges, we've got lots of big areas, and also we're ideally located because a lot of technologies are now based on the space industry. And Australia is ideally located to take part in the space industry because if you can imagine the globe of the world with the US as point A, the UK as point B, in order to control space, you need a point which is equidistant from the UK and the US and preferably in the Southern Hemisphere. That puts you bang in the centre of Australia. And it's always been the case, which is why places like Pine Gap and earlier Narunga were built here. So the increased technological development, and they're talking about cyber, cyber war, and they're talking about communications disruption, they're talking about financial disruptions. All these discussions are taking place in military circles, and then we find out that the technology cooperation is going to include Australia. And then, you know, I know it's coincidence, but the day after the AUKUS announcement, no, sorry, two days after the AUKUS announcement, a team of five NASA engineers arrived in Nulanboy in Arnhem Land to um, plan for some satellite launches in 2022. And this is going to push Australia into the space race, which is all about satellites now, you know, 5,000 active satellites orbiting around the Earth at the moment, a 1,000 of them launched last year, more than 600 of them launched up till the 1st of September this year. That is going to increase. A lot of these satellites are being used for military communications and disruptive technologies. And the talk about technology development is going to place Australia top dead centre in, in those kind of cyber warfare scenarios. And then a final concern I've got about it is all military technologies now, because they're high-tech, they're not about boots on the ground anymore, they're high-tech industries, require rare earths from all your computer processing boards, your screens, everything requires rare earth minerals to be created. And so the, the demand for rare earth minerals, as everybody moves up tech, I mean, I'm sitting here, even 10 years ago, I may have been sitting at a desktop, but I'm sitting at a... I'm sitting at a desktop talking to you now with a laptop, a desktop, a telephone and a tablet sitting next to me, and that's only in this room, not to mention televisions and radios. The military has had that same kind of increase on steroids. So one of the things that's come out of the Osmin talks is about logistic supply chain resilience on rare earth materials. Now, Australia happens to be not just um, the third largest producer of uranium in the world, but one of the largest producers and sources of rare earths. So what we're going to see with this technological development, and it's already started about two or three years ago, but it's going to go gangbusters now, is new mines opening for access rare earths, which um, now Australian companies have deals directly with the Pentagon. So we're going to see in Australia's most unpopulated regions. And when we say unpopulated regions, we've got to say indigenous lands, by and large, increased mining for earth minerals, and that's another concern. It'd be a concern enough if they were going into iPhones, but the fact that they're going into missiles and military technologies just doubles the, doubles the concern, in my view. You just wonder, Jacob, how much Morrison and his mates understand all of what you've been talking about. 
It would be hard to imagine that Morrison does. I mean, he's not... I, I don't think he's as stupid as he sometimes makes out. I think he takes a leaf out of GW's play the fool sort of playbook in that. But I don't think it concerns him, quite frankly, Jan. I think that issues don't concern him. What concerns him is doing the right thing by the people pulling his strings. And that's always the case with politicians of, um, well, of most politicians, I, I dare say, but particularly politicians like Scott Morrison who bring coal into the, into the parliament and things like that, you know. He hasn't got a big picture. He may not be stupid, but neither is he a very intelligent human being. He was a marketer, for Christ's sake, okay, not a nuclear physicist. And I think that he just doesn't understand the implications. And not only does it understand them, does it really give a hoot about them? Okay, well, let's bring Julian Assange into AUKUS. Oh, geez. One of the AUKUS countries wants to extradite him from another AUKUS country in spite of the fact that he was born in the third AUKUS country. Um, it is, it's hard to think about the Australian-US-UK alliance without thinking of Julian Assange, and particularly when we're talking again of military agreements and military posturings that have been created in secret. I've got to say, the AUKUS, um, the AUKUS announcement had us blindsided. Nobody was expecting that, although we did see the, the trend developing. And um, Julian Assange's I mean, recent revelations that there was talk, well, not recent revelations, this has been discussed for a while, but recent admissions that there were plans for shootouts in London streets, car chases, um, real James Bond sort of scenarios in London show us that even before, the whole time he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy, when WikiLeaks and Julian's supporters were saying that this is just a ploy to extradite him to the United States for political reasons, even last year when um, the court cases were going on and the British system of justice was saying that this is not political, it is merely judicial and, uh, and a criminal matter, and we've been saying it's political. Now, if it were political then there is no right to extradition, which is why the British judges were saying at the time that it was not political, because if it was, even if they found him guilty, then they could not have sent him to extradite him to the United States. Now that we've heard talk and admissions from the highest echelons of government that there was, you know, discussions about abducting him, how can they maintain that it was not political? How can anybody say that this is about leaking information which is basically about computer infringement and not a political not a political situation now that we have senior government officials talking about how mike pompeo took it personally that um wikileaks released the documentation and in particular documentations around things like vault sevens which published chapter and verse the playbook of cio operations in their German stations, which were, amongst other things, working for the election of Macron in France at the behest of the Obama administration, how can we say that this is not political? So this is how it ties in with AUKUS, I guess, is the same three countries 
the Anglosphere doing whatever it needs to do in secret to progress its military agendas. And its military agendas, of course, are no different to its commercial. The military only there to defend and extend its commercial agendas. So this is what it's about. Or Julian is tied up with Orcus. Orcus is tied up with Julian. Together, they're all tied up with the three Anglosphere countries working in secrecy to do whatever they want to do to further their commercial interests. Into all this comes the Raucous Caucus. That's right, the Raucous Caucus, the Raucous Antiochus Caucus. Well, Renegade Activists, which is um, you may know is, my, is an organisation I, I belong to, have decided that there's been so much, and this is so, Orcus has so many aspects to it, that the best thing we can do is provide a, a webinar that touches on not all, but most of the most of the issues I've raised today, but not just with folks like myself, but experts in their field. We've got Dave Sweeney, who people would know as expert on nuclear issues, Dimity Hawkins, who's one of the, the founder of um, the international campaign to abolish nukes, Scott Ludlam, um, who spent too long, he reckons, in the Australian Parliament. We've got Flick Ruby, who's an expert on Five Eyes, written lots of books and papers on Five Eyes, currently holed away in the bush completing a PhD on Five Eyes. Clinton Fernandez, a Professor of Strategic Studies at Uni New South Wales, who people might be aware of. And Guy Rundle, journalist, author, who writes for Crikey and Arena, amongst other things and um, Talay Mangione, who's a Fijian woman working on Pacific issues in Canberra at the moment. So what we hope to do is have a, an explanation of all, and myself, of course, and all the different fields, and then allow people to break out into breakout rooms on Zoom. The technology is there. We're getting the technology together last night. And um, to not just discuss the issues but be able to organise together appropriate responses because it's one thing to know the problem, but the important thing is to address the problems and that's what we're trying to do this Thursday night. Okay, what time? 7 o'clock Thursday and to book you can go to renegadeactivist.org. You can follow Renegade Activist or a Friday Rave or Raucous Caucus on Facebook or you can go to the end. Yeah, the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus, any way you can find it. Just type in Orcus Caucus or Anti-Orcus Caucus on your, on your search engine and you'll find us. And then um, we'll need tickets because we're breaking into breakout rooms. We need to know numbers of how many people we need to account for on the Zoom, how many people we need to account for in each room and all that kind of thing. So once people register... On Humanitics, they'll, um, they'll get a link to the Zoom for Thursday night. Thanks for all your work on this, Jacob. No worries, Jen. Thanks for having us on again. I've been speaking with Jacob Gregg, and if you'd like to be part of the webinar on Thursday evening, get onto the Facebook pages of either Renegade Activist or the Friday Rave, and don't forget to listen to... Jacob every Friday at 5 o'clock for his Friday rave. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.